Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again, bringing you episode 159. After those two recent Qing Dynasty episodes and all that killing, gore, and bodies ripped apart, I thought I'd select a topic this time that wasn't so gruesome and dripping with blood. Those two chains. That was a 64-ounce porterhouse steak. Char rare. This episode will be a little lighter fare, but I hope no less entertaining and informative. This topic has been on the list for quite a while. I don't know why it took so long to finally get to it. If you're of a certain generation or two, you may remember a few of these names and TV shows I'll mention later on. This is one of those topics that turned out to be much bigger than I realized, so rather than offer up some sprawling, multi-part series, I thought I would stick to what I felt, historically, was the real story. This is Chinese history as much as any other topic I've introduced over the years. The history of the Chinese didn't just happen in China. The real story is not about the movies and the Chinese movie-making pioneers like Marion Wong, Esther Ang, James B. Leung, and Joseph Sun Zhu. Today's main focus looks at the half-century between about 1915 to the early 1960s. The main point of this episode isn't so much the biographies of these Chinese Americans. I wanted to use a few examples as a window into the times. When they were trying to build their American dream in the entertainment business, the Chinese faced a great wall of overt and quiet racism and bigotry that was pervasive throughout early and mid-20th century American society. Today's story looks at this as it related to Hollywood and the entertainment business. It seems that any ethnic group who didn't come over on the Mayflower at one time or another had to run the gauntlet of society's disapproval until the time came when they were able to carve out their place in this fair land. If someone was Polish or Russian or German or maybe Irish, even though they might have been fresh off the boat and had a long road to hoe ahead of them, their white skin was often the ticket they needed to participate without any resistance in all the opportunities America had to offer. Without that requisite skin color, you had to pay dues. These dues were paid in all kinds of well-known ways. Here at the China History Podcast, we looked at this topic in episode 44 on the Chinese exclusion laws. Six decades in the USA, no Chinese allowed. CHP 123, the history of the Chinese in Mexico. We looked at the struggles Chinese faced trying to eke out a living south of the border. And also in episode 136 on Wong Chin Fu, someone so brilliantly brought to life by the great author Scott Seligman in his book, The First Chinese American. Through the life of Wong Chin Fu, we looked at the struggles Chinese Americans faced leading up to and after the enactment of the 1882 exclusion laws, including the Scott and Gary Acts. In this episode, our main focus will be on the struggles and achievements of Chinese Americans in Hollywood. Japanese, Koreans, Vietnamese, Filipinos, Indians, all the races of Asia who lived here as citizens have their own similar versions of many of these stories. In studying about the lives of many of these Chinese-American stars of old Hollywood and the broader entertainment business, the one theme that kept on coming up was there weren't many leading roles created for Asians in the movies, in the theater, or later on when TV came into being. If the mainstream was off-limits, then parts actually had to be created that were suited for an Asian character, as 
pigeonholed by studio execs and the masses who flock to see these movies. In reflecting on the challenges facing today's generation of talented Chinese-American actors or actresses trying to make it in Hollywood, let's look at the life of Anna Mae Wong. Anna Mae Wong, Huang Liu Shuang, she was the first. When she became the biggest Chinese star in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s, she did it alone. There were many other Chinese-American actors and actresses that came before her and who were her contemporaries, but Anna Mae Wong... She was the brand. Like the others I'm going to mention, she started off in the era of silent films, early talkies, and black and white TV. The movie stills and publicity photos you could find online of Anna Mae Wong show someone who had the entire package. As for feminine beauty, as idealized in the American Orientalism of the time, that sort of fetishization of Asia, she had that too. When you look at these old black and white photos, you saw a... Chinese beauty, like any other, going back to the time of Xi Shi, Wang Zhaojun, Diao Chan, and Yang Guifei. Except she didn't live in ancient China. She was an L.A. Chinatown girl. If you closed your eyes and listened to her speak English, she didn't sound any different from the Caucasian person born on the farm in Kansas. Except back then, that didn't matter. When Anna Mae Wong was born, 23 years into the Chinese exclusion era... The white man in America was still having the time of his life, lording it over his fellow citizens of color. Anna Mae Wong went through a familiar childhood filled with all kinds of mental and physical traumas meted out by sadistic classmates and neighborhood bullies. These bullies were just kids, but they had to learn about their superiority and sense of entitlement from someone. Guess who that probably was? Anna had the quintessential Chinatown childhood. Her family didn't own a restaurant, but they did own a laundry on the outskirts of Chinatown. This is the old L.A. Chinatown that used to be located near where Alvera Street and Union Station are today. The Chinese American Museum is also right there on Los Angeles Street. If you're interested in this particular subject, I strongly recommend a visit. Anna Mae Wong was born to Wong Samsing and Li Gan Toy, several blocks west of Chinatown on what is today Flower Street. This was in 1905. Because she was born just before the Chinese New Year, it was still the Year of the Dragon. In L.A., it had already been a good 34 years since the largest mass lynching in U.S. history went down on Calle de los Negros, October 24, 1871. Nineteen Chinese men were murdered by an angry mob and were strung up where the Pueblo de los Angeles historical monument is today. She grew up around that area. By Anna Mae Wong's time, things had quieted down considerably. But Chinese and all immigrants of Asian descent, despite their citizenship and worth to the community, still had to, you know, know their place. Anna Mae Wong was born into an interesting time. Hollywood was just starting to take off. The first film studio would open in 1911 on Sunset Boulevard when Anna was six. At the corner of Hollywood and Vine, the pioneers of the industry, Cecil B. DeMille, Samuel Goldman, and others, were already making their first movies. Stories from the Orient, with all its allure and mystique, have captivated and mesmerized Western people since the time of Marco Polo's travels. So when Hollywood became a thing in the first couple decades of the 20th century, there was quite a demand for these exotic tales from the Far East. 
filmmakers began making all kinds of movies with titles that suggested something mysterious and Asiatic. In the earliest years of movie making in Hollywood, the way China or anywhere in Asia was presented and fetishized would have any colonialist nodding with approval. The molds that the movie industry created to portray Asians in the movies fit nicely into what was known as Orientalism. This term was best articulated later on by the late, great Edward Said in his 1978 book of that name. In all these earliest Chinese-themed films, there was always a steady demand for extras. From the very beginning, the relationship with L.A. Chinatown and Hollywood was symbiotic. First of all, Chinatown was an obvious reservoir of Chinese movie extras. Whenever some director needed 25 Chinese or an entire Mongol horde for some scene in his movie, they'd send a few buses over to somewhere on Alameda Street or some meeting point in Chinatown. And there, a bunch of locals looking for a little fun and chance to make a little supplemental income piled on the bus and got to be an extra in a movie. And if a scene needed to be shot in China, no need to hop on a plane. As backdrops and scenery went, Chinatown had it all, and you didn't have to bus in any extras. Anna Mae Wong went to every movie she could. She was one of those young American girls who fell in love with the possibilities the movies offered. And like many American girls at the time crossed this great land, she dreamed of becoming a movie star. And she had a better chance than most. She lived in L.A., and when she was old enough, she was able to join all the neighbors and aunties and uncles and get these bit parts as an extra in a Hollywood production. Then, for five cents, she could one day go see that movie, and there she'd be, on the flickering screen. Fourteen years old, Anna Mae Wong got her first chance to be in a movie, and that was it. The bug bit her, and she was in for good. She was still going to school. So bad was the tormenting of Anna and her sister Lulu. They had to leave the local mainstream public school and continue their education at a Chinese school run by a mission. She did learn to speak, read, and write Chinese. Well, everyone deserves a break, and Anna Mae Wong's came in 1922 when she appeared in a movie called The Toll of the Sea. She had just left Hollywood High after her second year to have a go at this Hollywood thing. She was already five foot seven and gorgeous. Because she had the body, she had been taking on all these modeling jobs with local department stores, and these high-end fashions look fabulous on her. Director Chester Franklin cast her in the part of Lotus Flower in this first true Technicolor film. Then her life changed. Life-changing as the role was, it was sort of typical of the kinds of roles open to any Chinese-American beauty. In her role as Lotus Flower, she got knocked up by a white guy and then tragically gives the baby up to the man and his wife, and then she goes and drowns herself. The 1920s American movie-going public wasn't ready yet for any Susie Wong getting cozy with a Western leading man. So these kinds of roles were sort of standard fare handed out to Asian actors like a consolation prize. A guy by the name of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. saw her in The Toll of the Sea and decided he wanted her for his next picture. Douglas Fairbanks was the Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Harrison Ford of his day. This 1924 movie he was going to make was called The Thief of Baghdad. It's the film he's best known for. Anna Mae Wong played a Mongol slave. The film 
was the Titanic of its day, and no one in 1924 didn't see it. Small though Anna Mae Wong's part may have been, the role made her a star. 19 years old, beautiful and elegant, the roaring 20s in full swing, the jazz age, Hollywood in its infancy. Anna Mae Wong plunged in headfirst and lived it up as a flapper, appearing in vaudeville and movies with names like The Chinese Parrot, Mr. Wu, Old San Francisco, Shanghai Express, Streets of Shanghai, Across to Singapore, and Chinatown Charlie. Yeah, she had a steady flow of work. Between her modeling and acting, Anna Mae Wong was doing great. But the roles she played in these black and white films were all minor and undistinguished. More often than not, these films and the characters portrayed were just denigrating to Chinese people. When you saw an Asian person on the screen, they had to be sinister, evil, a cheater, or a murderer, or all four. The Chinese beauty... She was always a slave or a prostitute, and the plot would always require some Caucasian man to rescue her, and whatever happened to her in the end, you could bet it would be tragic. And wherever China was concerned, a favorite theme was often the Westerner who goes to China to save the country. There were no lead roles for Chinese. End of story. And back then, you can't believe this, <laughs> but they used to have these anti-miscegenation laws that on a simple level, basically said no mixed marriages allowed and all that that implied. So, no public displays of affection or intimacy between an Afro-American or Asian and a Caucasian. Like on stage in the theater or in a movie, for example. Now that in itself is pretty shocking, but the real zinger is that this law wasn't overturned by the Supreme Court until 1968 in Loving versus Virginia. All the way into my own lifetime... What this meant to Anna Mae Wong and anyone else Asian was that they never got the chance to kiss the lead. Not only was something like that too shocking for the times, it was illegal. So what you had in Hollywood was this whole concept of yellowface. Non-Asians would be made up to look Asian, like Al Jolson in blackface singing Mammy. And because they were members of Club Blanco, it was okay for the man in blackface or yellowface to be as intimate with the Caucasian woman as the times permitted. The go-to girl back in those days, if you needed an Asian, was Myrna Loy. Despite the Chinese-sounding last name, she wasn't Chinese. Her real surname was Williams. After Anna Mae Wong was passed up in favor of Myrna Loy for the lead in the 1928 movie The Crimson City, that was it. Another case of someone in yellowface in the lead and the bit part going to the Chinese, Anna Mae Wong in this case. Myrna Loy played a lot of Asians until 1934's The Thin Man catapulted her to stardom. So after she kept running into this brick wall, Anna Mae Wong said to hell with all that, and she headed off to a more civilized place. And from 1928 to 1930, she was the toast of Europe. She was there the same time as Josephine Baker, two women of... Great talent, sophistication, and beauty who were second-class citizens in their own country. But in Europe, they were feted by royalty, aristocrats in Le Tout France, Germany, and England. A tall, gorgeous, California Chinese movie star. That was quite a sensation on the continent. Wherever she went, everyone wanted to be close to her or at least be seen with her. And all those years of modeling the latest fashions, had taught Anna Mae Wong a thing or two. She knew how to dress well and get the most out of the latest fashions in Paris. 
She was quite a sensation, was able to get the kind of work that didn't restrict her to being a maid, a prostitute, a damsel in distress, or some role that fit the stereotypes demanded by American audiences. She was a huge hit in Paris, Berlin, and London, playing roles on the screen and on the stage that would have been off-limits to her in America. She even learned how to speak German fluently. Paramount Pictures lured her back to Hollywood in 1931. This was the year Pearl Buck released The Good Earth. Banana Mae Wong, despite her best hopes, just picked up where she left off. After her European experience, the whole being Chinese in Hollywood had lost its allure. 1932 saw her playing a prostitute named Hu Fei, who commits murder in the biggest movie of that year, Shanghai Express. The actor she murders, wearing full yellow face in the movie, was named Warner Oland. More about him later. This movie, which starred Marlena Dietrich, did well, and although the part Anime Wong played just stoked the fires of American Orientalism, she was critically acclaimed. 1932, by the way, also saw the release of The Mask of Fu Manchu, with Boris Karloff playing the lead. Fu Manchu was another pejorative character representation of the Chinese and the so-called Yellow Peril. The term Yellow Peril had been around since German Emperor Wilhelm II first coined it in 1895. These Fu Manchu movies later became sort of a joke in our day. But in the early days of Hollywood, this character, always played in yellowface, of course, did a lot to maintain these negative attitudes toward Asians in the 1920s and 30s only letting up slightly during World War II when we were allied with China against Japan. Anyway, Anime Wong went back to Europe again, where she felt appreciated and respected on her own merits. While she was in Europe, word had spread that MGM was casting for the movie version of The Good Earth. This was a big book. The movie mags stoked the fires but good about how fantastic this movie was going to be. It was hyped like crazy. Pearl Buck's book won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932. It was a big deal, and the movie going public couldn't wait to see it. It took three years to make The Good Earth. Anime Wong was a shoo-in for the lead role of Olan. She knew, and pretty much everyone knew, it was only fitting that Hollywood's best-known Chinese-American actress should play the lead in this blockbuster in the making. Well, in perhaps the defining moment in Anime Wong's life and career, the lead role went to German-born Louise Reiner, who had won the Best Actress Oscar the year before, the great Ziegfeld. And besides, despite Pearl Buck and everyone else's desire to make this an all-Asian cast, the producer Irving Thalberg said Paul Muni was going to play Wang Long, and that was carved in stone. And you know how it is, mid-1930s, those crazy anti-miscegenation laws. The final decision was to give the lead role of Olan to Louise Reiner. As for the role of the former prostitute, Arnai, concubine, Lotus, the book's antagonist, that was offered as the consolation prize to Anna Mae Wong. She said screw it and decided for the first time in her life to visit China. And so once again, Anna Mae Wong escaped from the disappointment that was Hollywood and arranged a tour of China. February 1936, Hollywood royalty arrived in Shanghai. I'm not going to say it was like Beatlemania, but it was quite the sensation when it all happened. It was a big deal for the newspapers and magazines. It was a gift from heaven. Only no one was looking for sleaze. She got the complete and total star treatment. 
Anna Mae Wong also got called out. This was inevitable from Chinese who gave her an airful about these roles she always played that denigrated Chinese in general. This wasn't just anime Wong. Many other artists and entertainers were also criticized for this and often had to defend themselves. But overwhelmingly, she was a big hit in both the Western and Chinese prince. And of course, Le Tu Shanghai wanted to rub elbows with her and have their brush with greatness. Wong Sam Singh, anime Wong's father, had by now already retired to his village outside Taishan in Chang'an. In April 1936, she paid him a visit. Back then, and probably still today, this place was quite rural. And in front of all the villagers and people assembled who got to witness the spectacle, Wong Sam Singh basked in the glory of his magnificent daughter's success. She walked arm in arm with her father, all the villagers gawking and craning their necks to copagander. And she looked elegant and stylish, walking with her father through the village, wearing a dark chipaw slid up to the thigh. That village in Taishan had never witnessed a day like that before, and probably since. So father and daughter both got to live to enjoy this moment of success, of parental pride and achievement together. Her success was his success. This ten-month trip invigorated her. But then came the fateful and bloody year of 1937, and for Anna Mae Wong it meant a lot of entertaining and fundraising for China during the nation's most desperate hour. She performed in Canada and Alaska, raising money for China and also entertaining American troops. And remember, while she's still serving her country in this manner, 1937, the anti-Chinese exclusion laws were still in effect for six more years. So that's how Anna Mae Wong spent the war years. Hollywood couldn't grind out enough of these anti-Japanese, pro-nationalist movies. Anna appeared in several with names like Lady from Chongqing, Daughter of Shanghai, Bombs Over Burma. On the March 31st, 1938 cover of the new Look magazine, Anna Mae Wong graced the cover, beautiful as ever, but holding a dagger, stained with blood, with the words printed, The World's Most Beautiful Chinese Girl. That was the year the new Chinatown opened in L.A., in June. It was billed as a place where Angelinos could go enjoy, quote, the enchanting charm of old China in Los Angeles. And when the war was over, that was pretty much it. The end of Anna Mae Wong's story. The demand never slackened for Asian actors and actresses to play roles such as cooks, crooks, gamblers, opium smokers, laundrymen, you name it. And a lot of these guys playing these parts, they were American-born and raised, but they, they knew how to speak that perfect Chinglish. You know, Hollywood had such a powerful impact on American people's perception of China, Chinese culture, Chinese people, and even what China looked like. I said whenever they needed to do a scene in China, all they had to do was drive to Chinatown, and there was always some Joss house, alley, or restaurant that provided the perfect setup or backdrop. So, of course, people who didn't know any better saw this and thought, oh, China, so fascinating. Well, the whole yellow face syndrome continued on, seemingly forever. Anna Mae Wong tried to face it down, but in the end, it was too much. She proved herself in Europe and felt the applause. Here in her birthplace, at least as far as the film and entertainment industry went, she was trapped inside a stereotype. She pretty much dropped out of sight into the late 40s and early 50s, sort of. Retired to Santa Monica, invested in real estate, and... Managed an apartment complex. She appeared on TV and the occasional 
movie, nothing big. Then a nice chance came when it was announced the Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway hit The Flower Drum Song was going to be made into a movie and with an all-Asian cast to boot. Anna was invited to try out for the part of Auntie Leon, but she was not able to enjoy the comeback or the success this may have brought to her. On February 3rd, 1961, she laid down to sleep in her Santa Monica apartment and died from a heart attack. The cause of death was cirrhosis of the liver brought on by chronic alcoholism. And you might be interested to know the producers looked far and wide for someone else to play Auntie Liang, from Seattle to Key Largo and Kennebunkport to San Diego. Not one Asian actor could they find, let alone a Chinese one. So the part ended up going to Juanita Hall, an African-American. There's another woman I'd like to introduce to help tell our story. Unlike Anna Mae Wong, she enjoyed a very very long and rich life, dying well into her 90s. This was Jadine Wong. She was born Anna May Wong, the May spelled M-A-E rather than M-A-Y, in Marysville, California, May 24th, 1913. She changed it later to Jadine. Today, Marysville is about a 45-minute drive north of Sacramento. At one time, during the height of the gold rush, it was one of the major hubs of Chinese immigrants in Northern California. The Chinatown there was centered where the Buckeye Temple is today, near the banks of the Yuba River at First and Oak. Sun Yat-sen had once visited Marysville to consult with local Chinatown leaders. Anyway, by February 1886, with the anti-Chinese exclusion laws in force, most everyone of Chinese descent was either roughed up and chased out of town by a mob or had bolted of their own volition. And the Chinese community in Marysville never recovered. But that's where J. Dean Wong was born, but it was in Stockton where she grew up and was most associated with in her younger years. Like Anna Mae Wong, who was eight years her senior, and millions of others across the country, young J. Dean Wong dreamed of getting into the entertainment business. But she wasn't just a movie star. She was a full-blown entertainer, an actor, singer, dancer, and comedian, all rolled up into one. She grew up in the same America as Anna Mae Wong. I don't know if they ever knew each other. J. Dean Wong's story was somewhat familiar. After graduating from high school, she ran away to Hollywood as a teen and appeared in a few movies. The experience wasn't what she thought it'd be, and before long, she went back to Stockton to regroup. The decade of the 1930s, that was J. Dean's first great decade, when she had her Hollywood period, appearing in the kind of films that perpetuated the same old cliches, hardwired into the popular American consciousness. She did a few Charlie Chan films, and all the while, actually since childhood, she took dancing lessons. She was a dancer first, I guess you could say. That was J. Dean Wong's particular passion. Then the great Charlie Lowe appeared on the scene. What a guy. When he came to San Francisco's stodgy old Chinatown, it was still awash in the comfortable old traditions kept alive by the generally conservative inhabitants. In 1938, he opened the Forbidden City at 363 Sutter between Grant and Stockton. This was right on the outskirts of Chinatown that ended one block north at Bush Street. Filmmaker Arthur Dong has produced the definitive documentary on this subject. His 1989 Forbidden City USA and the accompanying book tell the whole story, and what a story it was. Charlie Lowe, against the better wishes of Chinatown elders, opened this club. It was 
all decked out with the kinds of Chinese interior decorations that we all know and love. It was a full-blown, soup-to-nuts entertainment paradise. Late 1930s, there was no TV back then. No internet. Vegas hadn't been invented yet. The LP record was still a decade away. When adults wanted to go do something, because there was so little to do at home, they went to these supper clubs or cocktail lounges. And in the major markets, there would be these deluxe clubs where they had everything. Charlie Lowe's Forbidden City was one such club. There were dancers, comedians, acrobats, floor shows of every kind, and the booze flowed in torrents. It was a place like no other. It was slow going at first for Charlie Lowe, but after introducing a little TNA to the lineup, it was like turning on a magnet, and the crowd started to creep in. He found Noel Toy doing some artistic nude modeling over on Treasure Island. The Bay Bridge had just opened in 36. Noel Toy, with her scandalous bubble dance and fan dance, really gave the Forbidden City some momentum, and the club started to take off. Other risque acts followed Noel Toy, including, quote, China's most daring dancing doll, Kobe Yi. Two things really caused the place to skyrocket to legendary status. One was the bombing of Pearl Harbor that got us into the war. The other was a spread in Life magazine in the December 9th, 1940 issue. Those two events brought in a crush of soldiers in town on R&R, and curious tourists, locals, both Western and Chinese, all looking for that small taste of the exotic Orient the place had to offer. Again, I want to mention that name, Arthur Dong. In doing all my reading on this subject of not only these stars like J. Dean Wong and Anime Wong, but the whole big subject of the Asian-American experience in the entertainment industry, his name kept coming up as the great chronicler of these times. Forbidden City USA in 1989 and Hollywood Chinese in 2008. And most recently, a documentary on Dr. Hang S. Ngar. Anyone who saw his performance in The Killing Fields will know why he won the Oscar that year in this category. The Forbidden City spawned a whole slew of entertainers, some of whom went on to memorable roles in movies and on TV. J. Dean Wong was just one of many artists who were able to use the place as a launching pad to bigger and better things. Other similar clubs and lounges popped up in San Francisco. The Chinese Sky Room, Kublai Khan, Lion's Den, Dragon's Lair, Club Shanghai, and others. Each of these names attached to the Forbidden City, and there were dozens and dozens, all had their own story to tell, and some of them are just fantastic. They're quintessentially American in the theme of hard work and making something of one's life in this land of opportunity. Again, Arthur Dong's Forbidden City USA. I'll put a link to his Deep Focus Productions on my website. J. Dean Wong performed at the Forbidden City for years, and after the life spread, she tried her luck in New York. Their version of the Forbidden City was called the China Doll. From 1946 to 1951, J. Dean Wong wowed the crowds who came to see her perform there. There was a whole subculture that existed called the Chop Suey Circuit. It was an informal network of places like the Forbidden City that existed in all the Chinatowns and the big markets. The owners were all guys like Charlie Lowe, locals who had a foot in both the Chinese-American and the mainstream American worlds. The heyday for this period was from the 1930s to the 50s. J. Dean Wong played them all. 
Then, like Anna Mae Wong before her, Jadine Wong went to Europe, stayed for five years. She also entertained at U.S. military bases and was embraced wherever she went. She once had to bail out of an aircraft that was going down over the Black Forest in Germany. She parachuted out, survived, and walked through the forest to make her gig that night with Bob Hope. But home is where the heart is, and upon her arrival in America, she quickly learned things weren't like they used to be. Television in the U.S. started to take off in the early 50s. By 1954, more than half the country had a TV set in their house. That ended up putting a major damper on the nightclub scene. Now people could sit at home with a whiskey sour in one hand, maybe some chips and dip in the other, and be entertained right in their own living room. That's the USA that J.D. Wong came back to. She was already 33 years old when the Flamingo opened in Vegas in December 1946. After an initial stumble, Vegas took off and became a new gateway to opportunities for established and up-and-coming entertainers to try and make it. After she had come back from Europe, she tried her luck in Vegas. She saw the competition for dancing gigs and new and aging battle acts like her, despite still being a knockout at 40 years old. It was going to be an uphill fight. So, like many entertainers who came before and after her, Jadeen Wong put together an act and played the clubs and lounges. Anna Mae Wong couldn't get good parts in Hollywood. Jadeen Wong couldn't line up any decent gigs in any club or establishment. No one would hire her at first. It was that Asian thing again. But for someone who had the guts to dance on the street corners for nickels as a little girl in order to afford lessons, something as little as rejection wasn't going to make her give up. She did become a comedian and appeared everywhere, inside and outside the Chop Suey circuit, the Poconos, the Catskills, and all those resorts in the Jewish Alps and upstate New York known as the Borscht Belt. She married three times and said she was always too busy to have kids. And when she became too old to carry on her shtick, she opened up her own talent agency in the 70s. And for the rest of her days, like the great Bessie Lou before her, she hustled for hundreds and hundreds of Asian-American aspiring entertainers with heads filled with the same dreams of Anna Mae Wong and so many others. Except by the time the 1960s came around, the trail had already been blazed, and most of the obstacles that held Asian-American entertainers back didn't exist anymore, or at least like they used to. The pungent odor of blatant American Orientalism was still in the air, but that would slowly dissipate as the decades passed. For 30 years, Jadine Wong ran a talent agency. Some of the most familiar names she nurtured were John Lone, she got him the part in The Last Emperor, Joan Chen, Lucy Liu, Bai Ling, and the well-known and multi-talented playwright, screenwriter, librettist, Huang Zhe Lun, best known as David Henry Huang, of M. Butterfly fame. He said of Jadine Wong when she passed on March 30th, 2010, quote, the character of Madame Liang in my 2002 rewrite of the Flower Drum Song was my tribute to Jadine, a brassy, brilliant ex-actress turned agent for Oriental talent, an innovator and a pioneer. Jadine was the quintessential Broadway dame, bursting with chutzpah, never less than glamorous, a showgirl with a showgirl's body to the end. End quote. She was a New York institution. The J. Dean Wong Award was set up to help aspiring Asian-American dancers and choreographers to make it in their field. There are so many stories, and I'm happy to say many of them are quite well documented. I've mentioned Arthur Dong is one of the best known, but there are many other 
writers, filmmakers, curators, and others passionate about this subject. There's quite a record. My purpose in this episode isn't to tell the whole story or mention all the names, but merely to let you know this story is out there, and it's a great one. Anna Mae Wong, J. Dean Wong, just two examples. Many of these Chinese stars of old Hollywood, in order to legitimize their talent, would have to be compared to the big American mainstream names of the day. Larry Ching, the Chinese Sinatra, the Kim Lu sisters, the Chinese Andrews sisters, even Noelle Toy, when she was showing her boobs to 1930s audiences, was the Chinese Sally Rand, Dorothy Toy, the Chinese Ginger Rogers, Toy Yatmar, the Chinese Sophie Tucker, Chai Hong, the Chinese Chaplin, Barbara Jean Wong, the Chinese Shirley Temple, Joseph Sun Ju, the Daryl Zanuck of Chinatown. Yeah, it was always like that. So today in this episode of the China History Podcast, let's remember them for their achievements, their lives, and perseverance are really a great inspiration. You may recall in that History of Hong Kong CHP 108 episode, I discussed Nancy Kwan. She just turned 76 years old this year in 2015. In that episode, we saw how she was sort of the first to break the sound barrier in her role as Susie Wong opposite William Holden. And let me add, she was not just Nancy Kwan. She was also called the Chinese Bridget Bardot. What Thief of Baghdad was to Anna Mae Wong, that's what the world of Susie Wong and the flower drum song were to Nancy Kwan. But after those two big Hollywood hits, it was a slow and steady downhill ride for Nancy Kwan as far as any mainstream Hollywood roles. She, too, despite breaking new ground in the industry, couldn't find parts that deviated from the usual stereotypes. But like J. Dean Wong, Nancy Kwan didn't let that get her down, although she didn't perform as much. She still stayed on the fringes of the showbiz and has had a happy and productive life inside and outside Hollywood and still looks great. Not easy when you're pushing 80. I myself have never been in the movie business and never had to audition for a part. I can't speak for today's Asian American actors and actresses, but it appears progress has been made. All the Asian American stars of today, established and up and coming, owe a degree of thanks to those that came before them and put up with the worst of the BS. It doesn't hurt to remind ourselves every now and then about the kind of conduct in American society that was once considered acceptable. We might be shaking our heads and thinking, how did this happen? But it happened. And a lot of Americans put up with it for a long time. 1882 to 1943, more than 60 years, Chinese in this country put up with the exclusion acts. And because only they were targeted for this exclusion in this country, it sort of implied that they were fair game for other kinds of unfair treatment. So I thought all this was worth mentioning and talking about. Hey, after 239 years, United States, still a work in progress. I don't know why they had four actors play Charlie Chan, and not a single one was Chinese. Swedish-American actor Warner Oland was the most famous Charlie Chan, and one of the poster boys for the whole idea of Yellowface. MGM made 20 Charlie Chan films in the 1930s. The whole decade saw Warner Oland and Sidney Toller in the lead roles. But at least the Honorable Sons were Chinese. And of all Charlie Chan's brilliant and insightful sons, nobody achieved more fame and honors than Number One Son, played by the unforgettable and multi-talented Key Luke. 
He played Charlie Chan's number one son in maybe half a dozen or so Charlie Chan films. He also appeared in The Good Earth. And from 1939 to 1941, he was the original Cato in The Green Hornet, preceding Bruce Lee by 27 years. And those of us old enough to remember the early 70s surely remember Key Luke as the blind Master Poe in the 1972-75 TV series Kung Fu. Yeah, Kung Fu with David Carradine playing Kwai Chang Kane in Yellowface. Key Luke, he was prolific and got to play a few nice roles in his long career and lived to the ripe old age of 86. Victor Sun Young, too, was a Charlie Chan son, number two, but he's probably best known as Hop Singh in the classic Bonanza series that ran from 1959 to 1973. He was the Chinese cook employed by the Cartwrights. Benson Fong was another of the great... Hollywood legends. Aside from being Charlie Chan's number three son, he was a well-known face in 1950s and 60s television. And of course, as businessman Tang Wu in the 1968 Disney flick, The Love Bug. In L.A., Benson Fong was also known for his chain of Ah Fong restaurants. He was born and raised in Sacramento, California, and once described himself as, quote, half a pound oriental and eight ounces Yankee. Sammy Tong was another graduate of the Chop Suey circuit in the 1930s and 40s, but he didn't do too bad and went on to fame as Peter Tong, the houseboy who worked for John Forsyth in the 1957-1962 TV series Bachelor Father. That was a big show in its day, and Sammy Tong was practically a household name back then. Tragically, he took his own life in October of 1964 at his apartment in Palms, maybe. 15 minutes away from where Anna Mae Wong died three years before. He took an overdose of sleeping pills and left a note that read, quote, I have taken my own life. No one is to blame. End quote. And who can forget Chin Ho Kelly on the old Hawaii Five O series, played by Kam Fong. Kam Fong as Chin Ho and Zulu as Kono. Book em, Dano. I never missed an episode. It ran from 1968 all throughout the 70s. Kam Fong came from a dirt-poor existence in Hawaii, As a young newlywed, he was working as a welder at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attack happened. Then, several years later, on June 8, 1944, there was a freak accident where two U.S. bombers collided in midair and crashed into his home when his family was inside, killing his wife and two children. There are so many of these familiar names and faces. I could go on and on mentioning each one and their particular achievements. All these past greats, Anime Wong, J. Dean Wong, Tai Chin, Lisa Liu, Barbara Jean Wong, and so many others. And the men I just named, plus other acclaimed artists like James Hong and the great cinematographer James Wong Howe. You can say they all played a starring role in the history of these Chinese legends of old Hollywood. I'm going to put a few links on my webpage for all kinds of resources you could find about the Asian American experience in Hollywood. That really was the main theme of today's topic. I'm hardly a movie critic, or a podcaster for that matter, so I didn't want to present this episode as a critique of these stars and the movies they appeared in. I just wanted to offer a quick overview of these times in America and to give you an appreciation of how drastically attitudes have changed since then. So, I hope you enjoyed that. There's still enough time to get your own set of historic teas of China. I received mine the other day. Inside this all-natural bamboo wooden gift box are five wonderful teas discussed in the epic CHP 10-part series on the history of tea. 
Chieguanyin, Da Hongpao, Huangshan Maofeng, Longjing, and two kinds of Pu'er. If you're a coffee drinker and can't stand tea, they make great gifts for someone who does. The bamboo box has a great after-use when all the tea is gone. And after all these years, I'm finally giving you a chance to show your support for the China History Podcast by getting yours today. Make that call. Go to tsens.com, T-E-A-S-E-N-Z.com. The ordering process is easy. And here I am in my state-of-the-art recording studio in a secret location in Los Angeles, enjoying some right now. I'm off to China right after Labor Day, September 9th. I'll be in Guangzhou, Shantou, Ningbo, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong. It's south of the Yangtze kind of trip this time. I might get an episode uploaded on the road. We'll see. I already have the topic picked out. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again here in the Southland in the city of Los Angeles, barely half an hour away from the Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard. If you want to go see Anime Wong's star, it's at 1708 Vine. She got it on February 8th, 1960, a year before she passed. Please consider joining me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.